Welcome to Title Talk, a podcast where we discuss all things real estate, from title-related issues, entrepreneurial up and downs, mortgage lending, and more. Now, your host of Title Talk, Claude and Bob. Welcome back to episode two of Title Talk with Bob and Claude. Our guest today is investor extraordinaire Steve DeLeon. This podcast is brought to you by Texas Title University, educating the real estate community one class at a time. Welcome, Steve, and a little intro about you. As as Bob said, you are an investor uh, extraordinaire. Also, I've noticed you, you refer to yourself as an active investment strategist. You're the founder and investor for MCM Real Estate Services, a company focused on honest investment strategies and acquisitions. Welcome, and uh, we, we appreciate you being here today. And we start every podcast with a question that was left from our prior guests. So we'll go ahead and start that way. You ready, Steve? Absolutely. Tell us something unique that no one else knows about you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me uh, be a part of this podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to a, for, to a good show for sure and, and appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. I've been in the real estate business for a little over 30 years. Right out of high school, I actually was a um, I actually enrolled into the police cadet program. All it took was one, basically, to go on a uh, on a on arrest warrant with a robbery division for me to realize when I was there with no weapon and a uh, and a bulletproof vest on that that was not the career for me. So I finished my my semester there with them and then decided I needed to do something different. <laughs> well, they didn't tell you that when you were actually were a police officer, they gave you a gun. No, no, no. So, so it was a police cadet. Yeah, well, no, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah, we were going to get a gun after we graduated, but not on this, not on this run there. But that is some, uh, some, definitely some, uh, some excitement that I could, I could live without. Right. It's a little bit, a little bit too much on the, uh, on the intro, right? Exactly. To throw an eighteen-year-old in that, in that position, it was a great experience. But the thing, the thing was overall. But when we went out there to serve that arrest warrant for a. Uh, a robbery suspect into the projects in Fort Worth, it, it definitely changed my mind. Like, okay, this is not for me. <laughs> so that was your, your first and last ride along. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You're from the Fort Worth area. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your younger years and how you got into the business. Okay, sure. Native Texan, raised in Fort Worth, love my cow town for sure. At an early age, I was probably 22 years old. Uh, I was still in school. I got an internship to go work for a real estate investment company. And uh, there is where I really learned a lot about project management, how to really look for properties, how to do searches and, and those types of things. And um, back then, you know, in the, in the uh, uh, mid-80s, you know, we didn't have Google. We didn't have all, all, you know, you didn't have the Internet to where you could just, you know, punch something in and, and find, uh, find out who the seller was or the property owner was. So we literally had to go to the courthouse and do the research and really try to find those, those properties there. So working with, you know, working with them, I learned an, an enormous amount. I, I stayed with that company for a little over two years. And like I said, I learned so much about the business and t- title and insurance and construction and, and project management, like I said. And uh, so it was really a, a great education for me in th- those two years for sure. Would you first go and look at a property or a prospective property to buy and then come back to the courthouse or would you go to the courthouse first, see what was available or what what area you were looking in? What was kind of the process back prior to beauty of Google? 
investors today still do this. They basically call it driving for dollars. So basically you're, you're driving around neighborhoods and you're looking for houses that look like they're, like they've been neglected or they need, they need some work. In most cases back then, you, you really couldn't find the, the seller if the seller lived out of state or out of the area. So you really had to do some research. You know, you, obviously you would start first in talking to the neighbors to see if they had any contact information. Uh, from the, on those individuals. But when they didn't, you basically had to go out and try to find that information. The only way to really do it was to just go to the courthouse and try to find um, the, who the ownership is, where the last deed was filed and where it was mailed to, and, and just try to get hold of the, the, uh, the seller in, in that way. So old school prospecting. Old school, old school prospecting for sure. Do you find that investors these days, kind of the newer ones in the business, have any idea that was how you did it before? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> but you, yeah. I mean, we, we see it in the, on the title side, right? That people who have who've been in the business more than call it 20 years uh-huh. realized before there was email and before you could just log on everything uh, digitally that you had to do those things. And it's probably anyone under 30 now when you, when you tell them that's how we used to have to do it, they look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. It, it, a lot of the things in the business has stayed the same. But then there's a lot of, obviously, technology has changed a lot of businesses as well. I mean, you know, even look at the car business. I don't know. Most people shop online before right. they go and really uh, take to do a test drive. And the same thing with, you know, when someone's looking for a home to buy, they're looking at Realtor.com or Zillow or whatever. Uh, and they already know what the house looks like before they even get, before they even get there. But for, for, from an investment standpoint, I mean, there's still a lot of, of uh, I say call it like skip tracing, things like that, that you still have to do even now. But it's much easier than it, than now than it was before. I mean, now you've got apps that will figure out, you know, phone numbers that were tied to that address and things like that to where it makes things much, you know, much more competitive because more people are, are, have, e- have easier access to that information now. Similar in the, on the title side of things as well, right? So the, once the plants became digital and you could subscribe to them, the ease of entry or the barriers of entry dropped significantly. Yeah. The same thing, but what we find is it, it, the benefit kind of outweighs the negative sure. on that because mm-hmm. the amount of volume or kind of work-life balance, it yeah. makes a big difference exactly. with the technology. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Tell us a little bit about your first two years were with an investment firm, and then did you start your own company after that? You know, I kind of took that leap back in 1988. I uh, bought my first investment property on March 9th uh, of, uh, of 88. And in the class that I teach, I, I joke that uh, my kids get upset because they feel like I can spit that date out really quick, but then I forget their birthdays. You know? so, <laughs> at, at that young of an age, I didn't, obviously I didn't have the, the, the credit or the, or the cash saved, you know, like most young people, you're, you know, you're just kind of spending everything that you, that you've, that you've got. Uh, so I started off really uh, wholesale and I did the wholesale uh, piece for probably about two, a good two or three years before I started really then buying to, to buy and hold. And then at the time, you know, we would buy, renovate a property and resell it. You know, I didn't know that I was flipping until HGTV told me I was flipping properties, you know, yeah. back then. But, uh, you know, but that, that's really how we started. You brought up a term wholesaling. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know what that is. Can you kind of give us an idea of, or an explanation of what that is and, and how that came about? Sure. Uh, basically, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like you're, you're playing that middleman. You're, you're the, the, the wholesaler is the, is the individual that's out there doing now. They're doing, you know, a lot of either digital marketing or or uh, direct mail type marketing, or just you know, kind of driving around looking for, looking for properties, and they they don't necessarily um, they may not have the funds to uh, to close on the property themselves, so they they secure the the, the property on contract, 
and then they're typically assigned the, the contract to uh, to another end buyer. For me, the you know, and you know, and I can say this because I, that's how I started out. I don't really consider them a true investor because they're really not taking title. They're not really paying for anything themselves. It's more of a wholesale marketer is what they're doing. So they're trying to make a quick dollar on a flip or, or an assignment on an, on an assignment. Yeah, they get so they get paid an assignment fee uh, when they find that in buyer when the when the when the transaction closes. Just like the seller, they everybody gets they get paid and they get paid their their assignment fees and a lot it's going to vary. I mean, some of them are you know a, a minimum of you know say three or four thousand dollars or five thousand dollars, and uh, I've seen some that were even higher than that. You know, going into the forty or fifty thousand dollar you know uh, assignment fees. You know, but those are hard to you know they're hard to find in this market. So for the person listening to this that's trying to learn about the investment side, mm-hmm. so on the wholesaler, do they just have a group of friends that? Are looking to buy houses? How do they then find the the end buyer? A lot of in, of, of wholesalers, what they're doing now is that if there's been a, a creation of uh, of brokerages that basically cater to investment properties, and so the wholesaler basically befriends or works out an agreement with these uh, brokerages, and they they kind of beat the bushes and kind of supply some of these brokerages with the with these properties. Now. Some of the uh, individuals that are they're doing it on a, on a little bit higher level that have money to do it themselves, well, then they'll buy the property, close it out, and then they may just resell it. They may put it on MLS. They may post it on Facebook. They may be, just do, you know, create. There's a lot of different uh, pages, uh, investment pages that are on, on Facebook that they may post these properties and try to unload it that way as well. But typically your, your, your beginner wholesaler or the one that's just doing the, the, the volume type that doesn't really have the cash to, to close is going to do an assignment. They're going to have to find that in buyer to be able to, to, to be able to make the transaction work. Does your company work with wholesalers? We do some, very little. Of the 100-plus properties that we move a year, we probably, like maybe this year, I think we may have assigned less than five. But do you work with wholesalers directly who come to you with properties? We don't don't buy properties from wholesalers. Why is that? Well, because it's been my, my, uh, our our business model really to build more relationships with, with agents and uh, it, or direct deal directly with the sellers. When you're dealing with a wholesaler, you're not necessarily there again, you don't have you're not buying some something from someone that really has the experience of what something is it, it's going to um, take to, to renovate the property, for example. Uh, typically, they're not agents, so uh, they don't have the, the ability to run comps or, or run or you know to run you know what the property's really worth. They're just going on speculation. And the third thing is that typically you're not going to get the whole truth of what's really wrong with the property. You know, now there's some you know, posters out there. That I'm sure they're very reputable. They, they run a really good business. But for the most part, you have to be careful. I've seen other investors call us on a property that they've bought from a wholesaler and they're like they're and they're stuck. And because they went with a value that they thought a repair value or the overall ARV value of the, that property. And uh, now they're, they find themselves in a pickle where they can't move that property or it has bigger problems than, than, than what were what was shared. Right. In your classes, you, you talk about being a strategist, an mm-hmm. investor, uh, a strategist as opposed to an investor. Sure. Can you explain a little bit to our audience kind of what that means and, and how you got to that terminology? Sure. Most investors are looking at the property or the deal that's in front of them. To me, a strategist is looking at a property at how it fits in their overall scheme of what they're doing to build wealth or build their portfolio. When an investor, 
you, you know, in, in, in a lot of agents that I work with and in and, and some investors that, that, uh, that we get calls from, they're either flipping properties or they're doing the buy and hold or this, it's very few are doing multiple facets of, of truly investing and looking at it more from a strategy. There's a lot of properties that we buy that we will, will hold on to two, three months, because for me, it's, it's a property that I'm going to put with a, with a package of properties I'm going to sell to another investor. You know, it's just a different way of looking at it. So for me, a strategy, a strategist is some, somebody that has multiple exit strategies on that property. They're just not looking at it from, from one lens and where most investors are looking at it, just that property that's in front of them or the deal that's in front of them and trying to figure out what to do with that one, where I'm looking at it more from a multiple, multiple properties of what we're working with. It's kind of like, uh, you know, I always refer to, uh, you know, playing, playing Monopoly. I loved playing Monopoly as a kid. And uh, the, the thing about it is, you know, when I was growing up, I wasn't really good at it. But as I got older, I figured out that there was a strategy behind it. You know, and it's one of those things to where if you figure out what that strategy is, you know, and know that you need to have multiple things, multiple things working for you, you'll succeed. And uh, you got to remember when you're playing that game, only one, you know, you could play with six or seven or eight of your closest friends, but only one of you is going to walk away a winner, you know, so <laughs> we can, we can talk about that for a second. What is your strategy on, uh, on Monopoly? Because I have, I have one that I believe is the greatest ever, but <laughs> I think first of all, you have to look at it at, at the game itself and look at it from a standpoint of diversity. You, you can't, you know, you can't go into this thinking, okay, I'm going to buy properties only on one side of the board. Okay. Right. That's like looking at properties in real life and saying, I'm only going to buy them in one neighborhood. Okay. Cause you're, I think that's the, really the first mistake. The other thing is, is you have to kind of look at things from a, from, from the, the cash flow of what you have and the amount of money that you have. And I attribute that to looking at for real life. If you are an investor and you have financed all your properties, for example, your rental properties, all of them at 80% of loan to value, whether you feel like you've got that 20% equity in there or not, I'm telling you today that you're over leveraged because that's really not the way to, to, way to look at it. So, so I kind of look at, you know, at, at the, at the monopoly board when we're going, going and I'll buy anything and everything. Typically what I like to do is buy the properties that are around the corner. So, you know, if you buy two or three of those properties, typically the way the dice rolls and the way the cards are going to be laid out, somebody's going to land on those corner, on those corners. So if you buy the corner ones, on each side of the board, you're going to, you're going to be doing really well. It didn't matter if it's the, you know, uh, you know, the only one that only pays $140 a, a month in rent versus, or even the one, you know, that's been this paying three or 400,000 or um, a month in rent. But that's really the strategy that I've always followed is kind of doing that and, and just being, just having that diversity of what, of what you do. That's Bob, funny. Bob, yeah. What's your strategy? I want to hear this one. <laughs> exactly. So my, mine on that is I buy everything over leverage <laughs> And then wait the game out while you guys go broke landing on my rents. Yeah, there you go. And so it's the uh, similar in the sense that I diversify because I'll just buy anything. Yeah. Especially if you can get part place around there because uh -huh. they're typically going to hit that after they pass jail or whatever it yeah. is. As long as you can leverage as much as you can to buy properties and then then you're just collecting rents. Yeah. And then the, the poor folks that, that don't buy properties – that want to hoard all their money, eventually at the end start running out. You have to play to win in, the, in Monopoly for sure and have a good strategy. But I agree with you as far as the, the, the piece where uh, you don't want to be on the sidelines. You know, you don't want to be the – so you have to take that leap and buy the property, 
start buying the, the little houses to put the houses on them so you can right. increase your rent, those types of things. You have to do those things. You, 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 you know, and I think that that's even in if, if individuals are, are, are on the fence about whether they should be investing in proper in, in real estate, or, you know, they don't know what the times are going to be. We're going, you know, you, you can think of a million excuses on right. why. But I, there's a game I like to play when in in um, in, I, in when I'm teaching my the, the the class to agents is that uh, what was my property worth five years ago and what was my property worth ten years ago? Okay, and and you can even go back and go even go back in fifteen years ago. I mean, when we were going through the recession, everybody was like just bailing, just selling out. Right. And the the smart investors, what they were doing, they created a lot of these hedge funds and those this, those types of things. And what were they doing? They were buying. You know, it's kind of like Warren Buffett's uh, rule of, you know, when you're, you're buying when everybody else is running, you know, running away uh, or selling off. And uh, you have to take those you have to take those chances, because the thing is, is that we've proven over time that the, uh, with the appreciation and the amounts of rents that 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 you can accrue over that over the period of time, it's always going to increase. There's nothing that's in real estate that's cheaper today than it was five or 10 or 15 years ago, it's all going to increase in value. So I look back now and I think to myself and I kick myself sometimes of some properties that I passed because I think of, of, I should have just given that extra $5,000 because now right. the properties appreciated a lot more than $5,000 over the last five years, 10 years or 15 years. Well, and people don't realize too, doing it right. Money's cheap right now. Sure. Especially you have such a influx of people that are looking to rent. Mm-hmm. That even if you can't flip it, you if it's in a nice area and you can, you know, it's it's a relatively nice property, yeah. you can rent it out, and you know, with interest rates the way they are, at worst break even until the appreciation comes. Yeah, in this business, if you're gonna, if for you to build wealth, you're gonna have to own uh, real estate. You're gonna have to right. either whether it's income producing as far well, that's all. I mean, I'm talking about buy and hold. We we flip very little. Uh, we, we probably only flip maybe two or three properties a, a year, and it's just more so because it's, there's something about that house that we, we that we want to get creative in the renovation, and that's really the only reason we're really uh, flipping it. And it's really about, like you said, the long game. It is. It is. It it really is about the the, the long game and having that 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 vision. We've talked about the you know kind of a little bit about the different times of the mar- in, in the market. You know, I may be shifting gears here, but. Uh, you know, if you've been in the real estate business, whether you're an agent or whether you're a wholesaler or flipping or whatever you're doing, uh, in in the last seven to, to to say nine years, you've been in it when the market has been great. Okay, but if that's your only model, if you're only going to be a flipper or you're you know type of thing, or you're only going to ho- be a ho- wholesale marketer, for example, you're not going to survive in when when the market's bad. You have to diversify. You're going to have to start building some wealth. Give our audience a little bit of a what a typical property looks like that you look to acquire. Okay, well, um, we you know our our gamut kind of runs. We were uh, kind of like Bob's theory in Monopoly. We kind of buy everything. We kind of buy everything. Uh, the the least expensive property we've purchased this year has been a thirty five thousand dollar house, uh, and that was in in Haltom City. And then the uh, most expensive piece of property I've bought has been a. Five hundred and fifteen thousand dollar rental that was over there, uh, right off of, uh, about a couple of blocks from TCU, and uh, we've bought a, a lot in between. We you know we buy throughout Tarrant County, Johnson County, uh, Denton County, we in Dallas County as well, and then in Collin County, we're very solution driven. Uh, so it, we realize that it's not always about the bottom dollar, or the bottom line that the seller is going to sell to us. 
you know, if we can pro- we, we can solve for other things besides just the the purchase for for them, uh, we have a better shot at, uh, at, at getting that property. But you know, it would be surprising. A lot of times in this day, you know, with with with, uh, with things being looking, people looking for immediate gratification or convenience. Uh, a lot of the properties we buy are, are not what you would consider the traditionally distressed property. We have a lot of clients that that are agent partners that, that we work with that come to us with properties that uh, it's simply where the uh, the seller has uh, multiple pets or animals in the house and they don't want to board them or crate them. And uh, it's difficult for showings. We have where uh, uh, there's elderly people living in the home and it's hard for them to get in and out of the, of the house for, for multiple showings as well. Uh, so there's a lot of d- other variables uh, that are there. there. We've got people that are, that uh, want to buy a new house, but uh, they don't want to do anything to their, to their old house. And uh, they're just looking for, for a way to, to, to sell it with, with having the, with having the convenience of knowing what they're, or the certainty of knowing what they're going to be walking away from or walking away with as far as cash wise. And that's why, you know, companies like Open Door and OfferPad, uh, for example, why they've, they've uh, done so much business here in our market and other markets across the United States is because they're, they're, what they're doing is they're basically uh, making it convenient, but then also giving the seller a certainty of what they are going to be walking away from at closing. You purchase all cash, obviously. Mm-hmm. You don't go through the traditional steps of inspection pe- an option period and inspection period all the steps that a traditional purchase, let's call it, I assume. Right. When you go visit a property, and I'm assuming you go visit before you, you purchase, Sure. what are you looking for in order to make a determination that there aren't serious problems with what you're buying? So, you know, basically to, to kind of step, take a little step back, so most of the properties we, 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 we buy, we do buy with cash. Uh, we do have a, we've been very fortunate, very blessed to have a, a, a partnership with a, a local community bank that we have a, a line of credit with, but it serves as basically a cash purpose because there's not necessarily an approval process, an appraisal process and, or, uh, it's your like personal piggy bank. Exactly. Exactly. That we're able to tap into whenever, whenever we need to. But, you know, it, uh, a lot of what we do is when I walk through a property, I'm just looking for, my main thing is, is, is the foundation sound? Uh, are there any electrical issues that I can, that I can, you know, visibly see or plumbing issues? Really the HVAC, you know, it's not that big of a deal, but you know, the other thing is the, is the roof, especially in our area. Uh, you know, and I, this might be something that's going going on across the country, but you know, with the deductible so high, that a lot of times people they just don't get their roofs fixed because they can't afford the extra three or four thousand dollars in a cost to to, to fix it. To, you Bob, know. Bob knows a little bit about that <laughs> that deductible on the roof. Well, I, I actually got my fix, thank God. But but the but you bring up a good point where the old days, what a year ago, yeah, the roofers would just roll it into the cost, and yeah. now that's become. Uh, a yeah, no-no. That's a no-no now. So now, yeah, now homeowner sure. has to pay deductible exactly in order to get the roof done. Yeah, I live in the uh, tornado area. Oh, do you? okay. And yeah. we should have ours completed this week, but we're the only one on the street that had the roof uh, finished yet. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's dealing with insurance companies or or what. All the roofers that came in said you have to pay the deductible up front. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'm going to have to pay it anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's 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 true, and I think you're going to see with that regulation, you're going to see probably less roofing companies around because it's going to be harder for them to um, to to, ma- to manage that. You th- you think it would be easier, you know? Like, okay, well, now we're actually making what we're what we're making, 
uh, a, a lot of them, you know, when they're smaller companies that just don't have the um, the credit, or I should say the the, the <clears throat> warranty backing and things like that of that, that maybe more of a reputable roofing company uh, w- would have or have that uh, track record for sure. But those are, you know, really those are the things that we're, that we're looking at as far as um, – it's to me. It's a given that we're probably going to have to do flooring. It's going to be given that we're going to have to do paint and maybe you know do some upgrades in appliances or something. You know those those types of things. And uh, so uh, you know, and I've been doing this for 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 a while. So I, I kind of have a I feel like I've got a good pulse or, or on or my uh, an idea of what things are going to cost. You know to get that. So I can walk into a property and pretty much tell you. You know. A, a, at least a, a rough budget of what it's going to, and that's even with a small project or even with a large project that we're having that we're having to do. Do you have kind of a rule of thumb? So if I'm buying a property that's 150, we're willing to put in X to fix it, or is it just kind of by gut? Yeah, it's it's it goes by gut, but really it's more of, and I hate to say gut, but it's more more is from experience because like you know we've you know what we'll do is when we're looking at a property to purchase the property, you know obviously we all want to know you know bring this property up to to, to, to today's standards, okay? Then what is what's that property going to be worth? And then with the equity spread that depending on the age of the property, uh, we're looking from anywhere from a fifteen to a twenty percent equity spread in that property. Now, us personally, I talked a little bit about over leveraging and people going in like at eighty mm-hmm. percent of, of uh, on their investments. We typically only want to finance if we're going to finance a, a property. We're only going to we only want to finance about sixty percent to fifty five percent. So we're going to put an additional twenty to twenty five percent into the property to, to itself. So whatever I'm buying the property for, so whatever I'm spending on it. I need to have that factored in so that at the end of the day, if it's if it's um, you know if it's if it's worth a you know say a hundred thousand dollars, okay, once it's once it's done, I'm going to be able to not have more than eighty thousand dollars in it total, okay, after in, improvements, in, in, after my improvements, uh, and then uh, from there I'm reducing it even more so that I can I can have the uh, that equity spread that I'm looking for for my for myself and not over leveraging ourselves. What about the mistakes you've made? So obviously you talk about experience and, and kind of going with your, your gut. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest mistake you ever made in purchasing a property? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a good one. It's a funny – it's actually it's, – at the time I can look back at it now and say, you know, the, it's funny now, but no, it wasn't at the, at the time. Uh, I didn't – in Fort Worth, I, if you uh, – and for those investors that are buying properties at Fort Worth, they're, they're going to they're gonna understand this. Uh, there's um, – you can't have like the uh, a gas line off in Fort Worth for more than thirty days without it, you trying to get the gas turned back on without a plumbing inspection. They want to make sure there's no leaks in the in the in the gas line. Well, at the time, this is like one of the very first properties we 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 were fixing and renovating, and I didn't think to, to have the gas turned turned on on the property after the seller left. We just turned the water and the and the electricity on. Well, after we do this this uh, renovation on this property, it took us you know uh, longer than thirty days. Uh, we called the gas company to get the gas turned on. They're like, "Oh, well, you need to do a, you need, you need to, we need to do a plumbing check." And it turned out that we didn't have <laughs> plumbing. We had gas leaks, uh, you know, and so we had to kind of go back and tear up some of the things that we we already had fixed to repair some of those the gas lines that that were in there. And at the time, you know, I you know I was. One of the very first properties we renovated, and uh, so it was one of those things I learned really quick. Okay, let's get all the utilities turned on. Let's make sure everything everything is working. I never made that mistake again. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good lesson to learn. Thanks for listening to Title Talk. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, 
please give us a five-star rating. And also be sure to subscribe on all major platforms, iTunes, Spotify, and more.